Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Hey everybody, how are we today? Today we're diving into our Advent series and we're going to talk about being jolly before we get into it. We believe at CBC that when we open the scripture, it is not, it is not, it is not uh, a telescope to look at others. It's a microscope for our own soul. We believe in this phrase of the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. What that means is that we believe that God's going to speak to us today. We believe that the Holy Spirit is near and active and good and forming us into the person of Jesus as we press into his leanings in the scriptures. So before we go any uh, more forward, we're going to stop and we're going to pray. We're going to recognize we live in a critical culture and pray that God begins to shape our heart and our lives because the way that God changes our world is through individuals, through you and me first. So let me pray for us. I'll ask you to pray before we get going. God, I'm thankful to be here. That today is a worship day, that today is a day that we declare that you're worthy of centering our life around and so many other things vie for our attention and our time and our worship and you alone are worthy of it. And so today I pray that we just see that, that we recognize and realize your goodness and how it is far superior than all the other things that vie for our attention and our time and our worship. If you're comfortable, just spend a couple seconds and say a short prayer to yourself and ask that the Holy Spirit might do a work in your spirit this morning. Yeah, so you pray for me that I might <clears throat> do an accurate job talking about how good God is and how today we talk about how he wants us to be happy. Probably sings the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, our Christmas series this year is Tis the Season to Be. And we're going to walk through some common emotions or experiences that we feel at Christmas. So, it's a little topical, but it's good. And, and we're going to talk about today's jolly, and then we're going to get into generous and, and busy because we're all busy. How do we redeem these times around this season so that people might see more of God and less of the things that we're all experiencing? We're going to talk about how we need to remember that God is good in the middle of a season where a lot of us don't feel like God is good around Christmas if we've lost people in a few weeks. But we start with this idea, the song says it is a season to be jolly. We don't use that word a ton anymore. Uh, jolly, if you look it up in the dictionary, the first two words that pop up, you hear jolly and you see cheerfulness or happiness. So we're going to use all those words today, predominantly happiness, because that's what jolly means, a present state of delight in a current moment. When you look at, there are several studies that asks, what are the favorite times of year for Americans? And number one and two always are Christmas and Thanksgiving. We have in, entered into the happiest time of year for people. A couple of years ago, Kohl's, the giant box store, put out a study uh, because they wanted to sell you more stuff. 
and they said, hey, what do you like doing the most? What brings you happiness at Christmas? And I'll read the top five. One is sending out holiday cards. Those people are weird. Two is playing holiday music after Thanksgiving. I added the last phrase. Three is watching holiday movies. Two is decorating the house. And one is decorating a Christmas tree. I came up here to work last night a little bit, and I got home, and my daughter was dancing to the music of Christmas Party Station, because that's what we rock in the ride in our household, and she had just started decorating the house, and she was overjoyed with happiness and delight. She wanted to show me all the different Christmas trees she put up all over the house and the one in the room. It was beautiful. She was just happy. There's something about this season that makes us happy as a people, but here's my tension. I feel like this season is full of happiness, but I wonder if, as followers of Jesus, if we see happiness as a good thing or a bad thing. And so some of you today are going to say, God wants me to be happy. I know that. This is a good message for you. We're going to give you confidence in that. Others of you came up in a little more guilt-forward metric of a faith-based community, and you're going to hear this phrase that God isn't concerned with or God doesn't want me to be happy. He wants me to be holy, right? And it seems to me that if you look at the common narrative of sometimes the Christian faith, there's this juxtaposition between happy and holy. Let me read you a few phrases that are pretty prevalent when we talk about happiness. God isn't concerned about your happiness. He wants your holiness. Our happiness is external while our joy should be internal. Your happiness is temporary, but your joy should be external. Joy is something different than happiness entirely. Joy in the biblical context is not an emotion. Joy brings us peace in the middle of a storm. Joy is something that God deposits into us through the Holy Spirit. There's a big difference between joy and happiness. One writer said that happiness is a feeling and joy is a state of being. Another said joy is distinctly a Christian word. It's the reverse of happiness. You know who said that? Billy Graham. I know that I shouldn't disagree with Billy Graham publicly, but here we go. Welcome to CBC this Sunday, you know? Uh, one article that gained prevalence in the last couple of years was Jesus doesn't want you to be happy. And the author states, as you read through the gospels, you'll see plenty of promises of joy, but none of happiness. And they are indefinitely, uh, infinitely, excuse me, different things. Here's a question I have this morning. In a season that supposedly makes us happy, as followers of Jesus, does God want us to be happy? And so what I'm gonna do today is I'm gonna spend some time in the Advent story up top I'm going to try to lay out a theology of happiness throughout the scriptures. And then at the end, we're going to come back to the Advent story and see how and why this season above all makes us happy. And around 1.30, we'll go home. Okay? <laughs> because here's what you can't do. Really, you can't read the Advent story and not be overwhelmed by happiness. It's funny, as societally as we define happiness, if you go online and look up any Etsy shop with those, you know, the, the things that are popular, the word and then the definition below it, you'll find lots of definitions for happiness. A couple that I read, happiness is not having to set the alarm for the next day. Happiness is when you roll onto the warm spot, your laptop left in bed. Okay, that's... <laughs> see loneliness? Um, I like this one. Happiness is sleeping diagonally. Mm, and all the married men said yes, you know? Happiness is wine, all right. Happiness is a cute baby refusing to let go of your finger, you know? I love that one. 
Happiness is hot. Shower, it just goes on and on and on. And what I want to do is look at the Advent story real quick and, and look at how they defined happiness. Because what you can't do is read all the different seven or eight narratives in the first beginnings of the gospel and not see an abundance of happiness. Let me give you some examples. Let's start with Mary. Mary was happy. This is a quote from Luke 1. Mary sang this song. My soul is ecstatic, overflowing with praises to God. My spirit burst with joy over my life-giving God, for he has sent his tender gaze upon me as lowly servant girl. This is not joy that rests in the deep-seated understanding of the promises of God that will be fulfilled. This is a present tense happiness in the goodness of God right here and right now. That's Mary. Zacharias, who, if you know, didn't have a kid, wanted a kid, got met in the temple in Luke 1 and 2, and he says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them. Elizabeth, his wife, said this, and she became pregnant in Luke chapter one. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He's taken away my disgrace of having no children. The angels, when they met the shepherds in the field, exclaimed things like, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will be of great joy for all people. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom he's pleased. The shepherds in our story followed that and they went on from seeing the angels and they said that they told everyone what had happened and what the angel said to them about this child. And, and you're thinking, well, that doesn't say they're happy, but the underlying point of the text is they were so overjoyed they couldn't contain themselves. This morning, I was leaving for uh, work usually before my family gets up and my daughter woke up and she ran out and met me at the front door. And she said, dad, have you seen this thing? It's this little toy that we probably got in a Happy Meal. And it's this dinosaur about this big. And she said, when you turn the tail, the head moves. And I said, oh my goodness. And she said, you have to take it to church so you can show everybody. <laughs> she has a deep appreciation for my job. <laughs> and I said, hey ma'am, I'm, I'm not gonna do that because this is what parents say when they don't want you to take toys anywhere because I'm too afraid we're gonna lose it if it leaves the house, you know? And she said, well, then I'll just have to. And I said, okay. <laughs> the shepherds carried the message the angels gave them to everyone else because they were overwhelmed and they were ecstatic and they were delighted in what God is doing. Even baby John in the womb in our story is happy. It says, at the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leapt within her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard of your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You're a blessing because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. All throughout the Christmas story in the scriptures, we see people that are happy after happy after happy. In fact, do you know the only major player in the Christmas story that we don't see happy? Joseph. And I'm not going to lie to you. If my wife told me that she was going to have a kid and I didn't get to play the part in the fun part. I wouldn't be happy either, right? Low-hanging fruit there. But, but no, every step along the way, we see not someone filled with a recognition that God is still good, which is joy, but we see this deep-seated delight in what God is doing. And so when we come to jolly or happiness, it's a present delight for what God has done and what he is doing. That's what we see throughout the scriptures. That's what we see throughout the narrative of the story. That's what we see throughout every single key player in the Advent. It's this overwhelming happiness that God is acting. So we ask the question, 
Does God just want our joy or does he want our happiness? And what does it look like to be happy at the holiday season? But to do that, I think we need to talk about a couple different ideas throughout all of scripture. Because I do think that this idea of joy has co-opted or, or in some ways replaced our idea of being happy because joy is deep-seated and standing. There's a, a book by Adam Randy Alcorn and he wrote a book on happiness. And in his research, he said that he found more than 2,700 scripture passages where words such as joy, happiness, gladness, merriment, pleasure, celebration, cheer, laughter, delight, jubilation, feasting, exultation, and celebration are used. And that's not counting the word blessed, which has its roots in the idea of being happy. That brings to count way over 3,000 scriptures that talk about your delight in what God is doing. You're in the moment pleasure in a God who is acting and has acted and will act. And so, before we move on, what I want to do first is talk about this tension between joy and happiness, happiness and joy. Because we have this idea in the church, I think, now that they're different. But I don't think the scripture says that they're different. There are different facets to what joy and happiness are, but I think it's two sides of the same coin. And actually, when you look at the scriptures, more often than not, do you know what joy is tied to? Happiness. I'm going to spend a little time reading a lot of quotes to you guys in the next few minutes because I'm making a case that we've gotten it wrong. Here's some scriptures to start. Esther 8, 16. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. It ties them together. In Psalm 68, may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Zechariah 8, this is what the Lord Almighty says. The fast will come joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Psalm 92, you, O Lord, have made me happy by your work. I will sing for joy because of what you have done. Psalm 32, rejoice in the Lord and be happy, you who are godly, shout for joy. Psalm 90, satisfy us in the morning with your loyal love, then we will shout for joy and be happy all the days of our life. I don't know if you're getting this, but it seems to me in the scriptures that when we talk about joy, we also talk about happiness. It seems to me in the scriptures that happiness is not the second step cousin of joy, but rather another side of the same coin of the good things that God promises for us because of what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. And, and, and frankly, if you look throughout church history, the last few hundred years, theologians of all kinds have tied happiness to the human condition. Let me read you a few of the church fathers. Thomas Boston, who was in the 1600s, said, Consider what man is. He's a creature that desires happiness, and he cannot but desire it. The desire of happiness is woven into his nature and cannot be eradicated. It is as natural for him to desire it as it is for him to breathe. In the 1700s, George Whitfield, the famous pastor, said, Does Jesus want your heart only for the same end as the devil does, to make you miserable? No, he wants you to believe on him that you might be saved. This, this is all the dear Savior desires to make you happy, that you may leave your sins to sit down eternally with him. Charles Spurgeon, noted pastor from the 19th century, says, my dear brothers and sisters, if anybody in the world ought to be happy, we are the people. How boundless our privileges, how brilliant our hope. Anglican pastor J.C. Ryland, theologian, said in the 1900s, happiness is what all mankind wants to obtain. The desire for it is deeply planted in the human heart. It seems that for a very long time, we've understood that happiness is a holy pursuit if done well. 
And there's no difference between happiness and joy. They're two sides of the same coin. So when we say, does God want us to be happy? I can simply look and say, it it seems the scripture says so. It seems for hundreds of years, the church has thought so. It seems that joy and happiness are two sides of the same coin. Psalm 16 says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Here's the point. It seems like joy, if you like that one more, is made more full when we're happy at the same time. It does. And to have one without the other diminishes the other. You can't be joyfully hoping what God is going to do and have that be full if you're not presently happy with who God is now. And you can't be fully happy right now if you know that God isn't going to complete his promises in the future. When I first got on staff 14 years ago, that's four more than Delenn. You're welcome. When I first got on staff... I remember that first Christmas, I was 25, and it's my golden birthday, right? And so that was the first year that my whole family had ever gotten together for Christmas. I have a twin brother, a younger brother, and two sisters that are much older. Uh, If they're listening, they're not much older. And um, they came down, and we all got together. And I remember my dad in that moment. He's always joyful when we get together. He always loves our family. But he was happy in a different way because we're all together at the same place at the same time. It was fullness of happiness and joy. Not to just know that your family's there and cares for you, but they're present with you in the moment. And that increases our delight. That gives us an abundance of, of, of happiness in a moment where it's experienced right here and right now because of what's happening. When the scriptures talk about joy, they talk about happiness. When the scriptures talk about happiness, they talk about joy because it's a full understanding of who God is. And so we can't divorce those two things. A guy named Mike Mason wrote a book called Champagne for the Soul, Celebrating God's Gift of Joy. He says, when I'm joyful, I'm happy. When I'm happy, I'm joyful. Why should I want anything to do with a joy that isn't coupled with happiness or with a kind of happiness that is without joy? Happiness without joy is shallow and transient because it's based on outward circumstances rather than the attitude of the heart, but joy without happiness is a spiritualized lie. The Bible does not separate joy and happiness, and neither should we. We live in a broken world, so there are times when we don't feel happy and we should have joy. We're going to get there in a few weeks. But God's best for us is that you be happy and joyful at the same time. That is the promise that Scripture lays out for us. So the two divides... One is happiness versus joy. Two, I feel like we have this divide in our culture and the Christian thinking that there's a difference between happiness and holiness. I've done marital counseling like six times because people can't find anybody better. And there's, I'm serious. I tell them, please find somebody better. And if you can't, I'm here for you, you know? Um, there's a quote that I use in that, and, and I like it, but I don't think I'm going to use it anymore after this week and reading and studying. It's, what if God designed marriage not to make you happy, but to make you holy? And it, it, it's good because it kicks in the face this Disney culture that your spouse is going to complete you, and happiness is the point of you getting married. It, it's really not. It will lead to happiness, but at the same time, it will be hard. What we have to do there is recalibrate our definition of what happiness is. Here's the problem. So we have a pretty low view of happiness. And here's the other problem. We have a pretty low view of God's law if we think it doesn't make us happy. Psalm 1 says it like this, the very beginning of the wisdom book. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. What he literally says is the law of God is tied to happiness. 
And what we've done is we've made happiness a feeling in our culture, and that was never the intent in the Old Testament. That was never the intent in the New Testament. That was never how the Greeks talked about it or how the Romans talked about it. When Aristotle wrote about happiness, he had a word for it. And when he wrote about happiness, happiness was always tied to virtue, and virtue was always tied to good works and will. So when he said seek happiness, what he meant was you cannot be, you cannot be foolish and happy at the same time. We celebrate happy fools in this culture. He would say that you can't be foolish and happy. You can't be unwise and happy. You can't be debauched and happy at the same time. Happiness is a virtue and the pursuit of the virtue leads to a better version of you. The law of the Lord is good for you and your best happiness is found in, is found in God's best for you. It's why we talk about all the time that we live into the ways of God, not to be legalistic or not to make God love you more. That cannot happen. We live into the ways of God because God loves you and because he loves you, he's laid out what's best for you. So when he talks about how we treat others and how we forgive and how we live in love and how we pursue justice and how we function in our families, we do those things because God designed life and says, this is the most full life there is. Do you trust him? So when we talk about happiness versus holiness, oftentimes we think they're juxtaposing factors, but they're really not. Happiness is the byproduct of the holy life. Like what Thomas Aquinas, who's uh, one of my favorite philosophers and theologians, Italian dude out of the 1200s, he says in his work Summa Theologica, which has to mean it's really good, he says, it's impossible for any created good to constitute man's happiness. For happiness is that perfect good which entirely satisfies one's desire. This is to be found not in any creature, but in God alone. Therefore, God alone constitutes man's happiness. Holiness is exactly what secures our happiness, if you know God well. Charles Spurgeon said, Holiness is the royal road to happiness. The death of sin is a life of joy. So, There is no happiness apart from holiness and goodness. Happiness is a byproduct of holiness and goodness that constitutes both our happiness and our long-term joy. And I feel like I've thrown these numbers out a lot over the last few months, but there are actual stats to back up the fact that if you live life with God's best good as you are good, life is better. People that live marriage out in God's way are happier long-term. People that go to church have more joy and fulfillment. And and literally, if you look across the spectrum, suicides are down, depression's down. One stat and study says that the average person that goes to church, literally goes to church, can add up to seven years on their life. Imagine if you came twice a week, you know? (laughs) I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm looking out for your good, all right? (laughs) So we at Crossroads, man, we really believe that we live into the ways of God because it's the best for you. That's why our podcast is called A Better Way. That, that God's best for you is his laws and his holiness. Alcorn in his book said, holiness doesn't mean abstaining from pleasure. Holiness means recognizing Jesus as the source of life's greatest pleasure. God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be happy and joyful at the same time. It's a fuller picture of both of those words. He wants you to be happy because that's what holiness looks like. It leads to your happiness. And if you're still not convinced, God wants you to be happy fundamentally. You know why? Because God is happy. I don't know how you grew up with a picture of Jesus in your head. But, but I, I grew up in the mid-90s to late-90s to early-2000s. And I had this picture of God, wrongful picture of God. And I'm not saying whose fault it was. It was probably my own. Of God in heaven waiting for me to mess up, you know? 
like the red pen marker teacher grade system kind of sort of analogy. I grew up in this place where God was waiting for me to mess up and he was waiting to punish. And if I asked for forgiveness, then maybe he just wouldn't for a little while, but he really wanted to, but he just couldn't because I said the magic words. Terrible theology. Terrible theology. I grew up in the space when Jesus wasn't joyful. You know, a, a couple years ago, we did a Good Friday service and at the end of it, we gave people a picture of Jesus smiling, like resplendently smiling for the joy set before him. He went, he endured the cross kind of sort of stuff we forget sometimes that Jesus was happy. One of my favorite things in the scriptures is to point out the moments when I think Jesus makes jokes, you know? I think it's great. Every time an angel scares somebody and says, don't be afraid, I think they laugh at us. <laughs> I think it's rightful that they laugh at us. I think God grins. You can ask the staff, one of my favorite things to do around here, one of my favorite things to do is to hide behind corners while they walk around and jump out and scare them because I want to be like Christ. They hate it, but I'm just making them holy, which is them happy. Do you see where I'm going here? I wonder if we see Jesus as happy or not. If we see God as happy or not. In Psalm 115, it says, Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. Man, God loves being God. He's extremely happy. In 1 Timothy 11, it says that this is the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Literally, it's the glorious gospel of the happy God, is what Timothy says. How do we see God? If you don't see God as happy, then maybe we don't aspire towards happiness in our Christian life. I think that would be a problem. One of my favorite books is called Delighting in the Trinity. And, and they talk about how the Trinity is so fundamental to how we see our world and God. They call it the cockpit of all Christian thinking. Because how we see God reflects how we are supposed to live. It's kind of like, um, you know, my one and a half year old Often, it's the thing with kids. They'll run around and they'll fall down and then what's the first thing they do when they fall hard? They look to mom and dad and they look at our faces and if we're like, oh my gosh, then they freak out. But if we say, hey buddy, you are okay. Just pop back up like, all right. They dust it off and move on with life. I think the way that we see how, the trin how God works within himself, the way we see how God displays his affection for one another and his joy for one another and his happiness for one another is a mirror for which we should then aspire to act in our lives. So when we see this idea that God fundamentally loves being God and before we came around, God was fully happy in and of himself, it's a picture that we're supposed to aspire to happiness as well. One writer said, before you ever had a happy moment or your great grandparents ever had a happy moment or Adam and Eve ever had a happy moment before the universe was even created, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit were enjoying a perfect and robust relational delight in one another. God was perfectly happy in and of himself. So when he visits the angels in Luke 2.10, he said, glory to God in the highest, and they're happy. You know where that came from? God being happy. They're reflecting the character and the nature of a happy God. It's a beautiful depiction of who he is. Jonathan Edwards says it like this, the happiness Christ gives to people is a participation in his own happiness. Maybe sometimes we just need to ask what we think about God and is that right with how God actually is based on the scriptures? And we have to believe that God wants us to be happy in the holy kind of way because that's who he is and that's what he wants to give us. Jesus said it in John 15, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. 
The Bible commands us to be happy, and it's a byproduct of being holy and being formed into the image of God who is happy. So we've established that I think happiness is a good and godly and holy pursuit, and we shouldn't shy away, but press into it. We should be happy people. But then let me end with, and I use end loosely. We got some time, everybody. All right, don't get too excited. Uh, I end with, why this time of year? Why are we happier at Christmas? Why should Christians, I make the case, I think Christians should maybe be happier at Christmas because of what we talk about, because of what we remember. There's a story of a man named Simeon in Luke chapter two, and we don't normally get there in the Advent series because it's after the birth of Jesus. And so Jesus happens, and there's shepherds, and there's angels, and there's Mary, and then we're kind of done with that, and then we move on to, if you're around here, spiritual disciplines. (laughs) But in Luke chapter two, the baby's born, they come back, and he's presented at the temple. Let me read you this text. It says, at the time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was eagerly awaiting the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and he revealed to him that he would not die until he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms, and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace. And what peace means there is he can die happy. He can die thrilled. Let me die in peace as you have promised. Verse 30, I have seen your salvation. We're gonna talk about two reasons real quick why we have happiness around this time of year. So this man, Simeon, had been waiting for this. And you gotta know the context of this story. God had been silent for 400 years. It had not been a good 400 years for Israel. They didn't know where he went or why he wasn't speaking anymore. They didn't know why there were no more prophets. They didn't know why Rome got stronger and they got weaker. And this baby goes to the temple and Simeon recognizes him through the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, now I can die in peace because this is just a baby at this point, weeks old. And he said, I have seen your salvation as he looks at this kid. And there's two things we see that I think we can celebrate and be happy in this Christmas season. And it's the energy of God to come and save us and it's the effort with which God did it. Sometimes we forget to celebrate around the Christmas season because we've forgotten how far we've fallen and how far God came to save us. In John 1, classic verse for Christmas. The word became flesh and took up residence among us. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only. There's a moment all the time around my house now. Again, my one and a half year old boy, he is very attached to me lately. <laughs> he keeps calling me mom. We're trying to fix that, but <laughs> true story. <laughs> But you laugh. I'm a little scared. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll leave. And, and like the other day, I was just going out to the driveway to get something to come back. And you leave and he just freaks out, you know. He cries and he cries and he screams and he yells and just wants you to come back. You, you realize that, that when sin hit the world, God and man were walking hand in hand. And then sin allowed us, disallowed us from being in the presence of God. And you know what Christmas is? Man, it's God coming back for his people. It's me walking back in the door and my kid realizing that I didn't leave him forever. So when it says the word became flesh and dwelt among him, why do we celebrate around Christmas? Because God came back for us. Ephesians 2 puts it like this. I'll read the long version. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the heir of the kingdom, the spirit who's now alive and at work in those who are disobedient. 
Verse three, all of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following his desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. It's a problem in the plight of sin in our world. That we're saved, like Simeon says, I've seen your salvation not by anything we did, but because God is good and loving and kind. And he goes on to say, but because of God's great love, the God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. If, if Christ's coming doesn't make us not just joyful, but genuinely happy, then maybe we don't grasp the depth between where he came from and where we are. You know what? Christmas is something that should put a smile on your face because God came back for you and you didn't deserve it. It's this beautiful depiction that I'm thrilled that God loves me enough to come back for me. It makes me not just joyful, and I am joyful. It makes me downright happy. But then Simeon goes on, and he doesn't just say that, you know what, I'm going to die happy because God came back for me because I see my salvation. I see the salvation of Israel in spite of our wrathful beings, in spite of our disobedience, in spite of my not deservingness of it. My God came back for me because he loved me. And he goes on, and he says, not just did you come back, but he says in the text, in verse 31, which you have prepared for all people. I think we got to look at two things, not just that God came back, the energy he spent to do it, but the effort with which God came back to save you and me. Sometimes we think that, I don't know, maybe we don't put enough thought into the fact that God didn't just come back all of a sudden. God came back in a specific time, in a specific place, because this was his plan all along. Before the fall, in the fall, after the fall, God said, I'm going back for my people, but it's going to be the right time. That's why my favorite verse in the Christmas season is Galatians 4. It says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And not to make this too long, but you have to understand the specific set of circumstances that lined up for Jesus to come. Prophecies aside, and the prophecies of Christ's coming were incredibly hard to meet, incredibly difficult to actually fulfill. Some would say that the amount of prophecies given about Christ that came true, the percentages are like, I'll just use a Texas one that I've heard. If you cover the state of Texas in, two, in, in, in coins, like dollar coins, up to your knees, and you mark one black X on one, throw it in the middle somewhere and say, go pick it out, you get one shot. When you, when you talk about the way in which Jesus came, it is fundamentally mind-blowing the effort that went into it. And if you just look at the Roman culture at the time with the Greeks and the Jews, it all lined up really well. Like I said, the 400 years were hard. The Jews were at their wit's end. They had a really bad thing happen in about 140 BC, and they knew that they needed a savior, and they expected it to come around then. Jewish historians talk about it. The Roman world at that time gave everybody peace for the first time that we know of in recorded history. And let me tell you something from experience. If you're going to speak a spiritual truth into somebody's life, oftentimes for them to hear it, there has to be some kind of civil peace. That's why we build homes in Mexico and bring the gospel and give care packages for Operation Christmas Child. So the Jews knew they needed a savior for the first time in a very long time. Romans provided peace and roads so that the gospel message could get out. And the Greeks provided a, a, a language that the whole world used for the first time ever. In such a time as this, God said, now is when I make my landing and I come back for my people. Because what we see in the Christmas story is not just a God that loves you enough to come back, but a God that loved you enough to plan for his arrival for you. 
We say around here, uh, especially with volunteers, that preparation is care. And so if you've ever worked in kidsmen, care is one of the best I've seen at preparing for our volunteers. That she would call it, she sets them up for a win. And we do whatever we can to prepare for you. Do you know what? Because we care for you. It's why if you've ever had a kid, a first kid, the second and third are kind of afterthoughts. The first kid, you prepare that nursery months in advance. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you get everything just right. Because the way that we prepare is the way that we care for those around us. And God says, I prepared for this moment. Do you know why Christmas is happy? Because it shows us through God's effort and his energy that he truly, truly loves us. That he comes back for us. Shows us the value of us to him when we didn't deserve it in the first place. It's a beautiful depiction of the extent through which God will come to save you and me. So when we say, tis the season to be jolly, do, do you know why I can say that as a Christ follower and not feel like I'm going theology light? Because it's true. Because of all the things that bring happiness, whether it's the hot cocoa or the trees or the decorations or the lights or Santa if you got small kids, all those things are fine. But what really makes me happy this time of year is remembering how much God gave up to come and find me and save me. And I'm overwhelmed when I think about the energy and effort he put forth to come back here. I'm overwhelmed with a present delight for what God has done and for what God is doing. And so should we be happy around Christmas? Yeah, because we see the full picture of a God who came here for you and he prepared for it. And so look, Christmas is gonna get busy. Christmas is gonna get hectic. Christmas is gonna be sad for a little while. Christmas is gonna be all the things. But in the middle of that, we are a people that remember why we're truly happy because God came back for us. And so in the next month or so, if you find yourself in a place where you're not happy, simply write down and remember that God came back for you. Simply write down and remember that his energy and his effort were worth it because of how much he cared for you, not because you earned it, but because he's that caring. In the middle of the Christmas season, as we started actually, may we be a happy people because we know the full picture of how much God gave up for you and me because he came back for us. That's why I'm happy. On the good days and bad days, that's why I'm happy. It would be a church that pursues joy at all costs and in that joy finds happiness because we know and follow a happy God. Let me tell you something. In a world that is more and more depressed, that is more and more anxious, that is more and more concerned over all the things in the world, that is in their stats on this less and less happy, do you know what people need to see? <laughs> people need to see Christ followers that are happy so that they see that God is too. I like what Charles Spurgeon said, I'll end with this. A happy Christian attracts others by his joy. May we be that kind of people around this holiday season because it is the season to be jolly. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that you're a happy God. I'm thankful that you want us to be happy, not just joyful, but happy. I'm thankful that we can take deep pleasure in the present working of God today as we see what you're doing based on what you have done and may that lead to joy as we look forward to what you will do. God, our prayer is that you increase our happiness, our happiness this holiday season. And that as people see that, they see the goodness of God. Because as we tell the story of Christ coming back again and again and again, may it never lose its impact. 
such a great God came back for me because he loves us. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.